Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's increasing grip on the GOP with the sweep in Arizona of his stop-the-steal election deniers nominated to run for the top political offices in Arizona, where they will be able to rig the 2024 election in this key swing state in Trump's favor, assuming they win in November. Joining us is Jim Small, Editor-in-Chief of the Arizona Mirror, a non-profit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government, a native Arizonan. He has covered state government, policy and politics since 2004 and previously was the Executive Director and Editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting, as well as the Editor of the Arizona Capital Times. We will discuss his latest article at the Arizona Mirror, Corporations That Pay Little in Taxes Want Kirsten Cinema to kill the corporate minimum tax. Then we'll examine further the sellout Senator Cinema, this vain dilettante who refuses to talk to the press or her own constituents while currying favour with the billionaire class she appears to be auditioning for, having gifted hedge fund managers and private equity titans by saving the carried interest loophole that even Trump wanted to close. Joining us to discuss what future payoffs might be in store for cinema is Erica Payne, founder and president of The Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement and co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Then finally we'll assess the success so far of Putin's weaponization of history as his Orwellian lies and historical fiction indoctrinates Russian soldiers mired in his special operation in Ukraine while keeping the home front on board through propaganda and repression of dissent. Joining us is Isabella Tabarovsky, a senior program associate at the Kennan Institute, where she oversees the Institute's historical memory research and programming, manages its Russian file and focus Ukraine blogs, and coordinates its U.S.-Israel working group on Russia in the Middle East. Her expertise includes the politics of historical memory in the post-communist space, the Holocaust, Stalin's repressions, and Soviet anti-Semitism. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from Arizona is Jim Small, the editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror, a nonprofit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government, a native Arizonan. He has covered state government policy and politics since 2004 and previously was executive director and editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting, as well as the editor of the Arizona Capital Times. And his latest article at the Arizona Mirror is Corporations that pay little in taxes want Kirsten Cinema to kill the corporate minimum tax. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jim Small. Oh, thank you for having me on. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Jim. And uh, before we talk about Kirsten Cinema, let's talk a little bit about the election results from last Tuesday's primary in uh, Arizona, which had some pretty far-right Trumpsters got nominated for very key positions, including for governor, former television reporter, Carrie Lake. Uh, she squeaked through. Blake Masters, a uh, protege and funded by Peter Thiel, the tech billionaire. He's an election denier, among other things. But the most prominent and possibly the most dangerous of all of these characters is Mark Fincham, who's Republican nominee for Secretary of State. He's a QAnon believer, and he actually attended the insurrection on January the 6th at the Capitol. So that's not all of them, but it's enough to give you a heartburn if you're a Democrat. And how how is Kelly going to do against this juggernaut? I mean, it's going to be pretty well funded. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at... You know, our, our election results, I mean, the Trump slate swept, really. And and that goes for everything from Blake Masters for the U.S. Senate, our statewide offices where Trump um, chose uh, chose candidates, and all the way down to our, our state legislative races, too. Um, we had uh, a number of uh, well-regarded incumbent Republicans who lost in their primaries uh, and lost very badly, lost, you know, uh, two to one almost uh, because uh, because you know the Trump machine was essentially saying that they were you know that they were terrible and and so it it you know there's no doubt about it that right now the Arizona Republican Party um, you know is the party of Trump that's just flat out the way it is um, you know I think if you're if you're someone who cares about democracy and about elections not being screwed with then the the republican slate is terrifying because all three of our top statewide officers the the governor the secretary of state and the attorney general are all required to sign off on elections and certify the canvas all three of them uh were endorsed by trump and all three of them have said that they would not have signed they signed the the 2020 election that that they would they are so convinced that there was fraud uh, that has yet to be proven yet to be found that they would have they would have not signed off on that election and they they say that they won't sign off on any future elections if they have any doubts at all about them um regardless of the fact that state law doesn't really give them the option on that uh, you know so that is uh, you know th- that's kind of the situation right now and then you know when it comes to that senate race yeah i mean uh, blake masters is uh you know i think that they, he's been kind of portrayed as kind of like this new breed of conservatism which is true, but that that breed of conservatism is, you know, extremely far to the right and is extremely like, you know, proto-fascist, if not uh, very you know, close to being openly fascist or authoritarian. And you know, Mark Kelly is an incumbent. Uh, he was elected in a special election um, a couple of years ago to to fill up the rest of John McCain's term, and he's uh, he's probably the best chance the Democrats have, you know, at, at retaining that seat for sure because he is he's a moderate. Um, he portrays himself as an independent, someone who's not uh, not tied to you know necessarily party orthodoxy, and he's he's handled himself that way and voted that way and, and introduced legislation that way. He's also got a ton of money. Uh, I think he's raised. I think he might have like 15 million on hand, something like that, right now coming into uh, into the general. Uh, Blake Masters has very little. Uh, he didn't he he didn't do a. He did an okay job fundraising, but he spent a lot. It was a competitive primary uh, where he's going to be getting his funding is going to be from outside support. And like you said, from Peter Thiel and from some of the other uh, handful of other uh, tech billionaires who have ponied up money to try to get him elected. 
and and you know he's he's one half of Peter Thiel's uh, sort of disruptive slate. Uh, the other one being J.D. Vance in Ohio, who currently is uh, seems to be struggling. Uh, according, you know, if you look at the polls. So one of the casualties, though, of Trump and the, this Trump slate that swept, as you point out, was of course Rusty Bowers, the Speaker in the House, very conservative Republican. He testified before January 6th committee, was very effective, and paid a huge price, right? So what does it mean about the the Republican voters in Arizona? Are they all far right, or they just, did they all, the far right people just show up for the primary? Is there anything left in the center right in Arizona? Yeah, there is. The, the question is, can they what what are they going to do in November? Uh, they're certainly not not enough to control the direction of the party right now. You know, I, I think it's really important to note if you look at all four of the kind of the big marquee races here, right? Are the the Senate race, the governor's race, Secretary of State, and the Attorney General's race. None of the pro-Trump candidates who got through those um, the, the, got through those primaries in advance of the general, not a single one of them got fifty percent of the vote. They all got anywhere between the low 40s to you know, maybe like 47, 49, 48, 49. Um, and, and so none of them actually got a majority of Republicans, which I think is telling, right? Like they may have won, but they all had fairly crowded fields. And Republicans, you know, there, there were a lot of Republicans who did not think that they were the best choices. Uh, that, and whether that's because they voted for a more establishment figure or they voted for a different brand of, of uh, you know, kind of new Republican Trumpy, Trumpy sort of attitude. They didn't. They weren't behind Kerry Lake. They weren't behind Blake Masters. Uh, I'm sure a lot of those people will coalesce behind them as they head into the general party unity. You know, is a thing, and 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 people will will stand behind Republicans instead of voting for Democrats. But not all of them. And so the key for Democrats going forward here is, can they appeal to to Republicans to those ones who you just really do not like Trump and do not like the people that represent him in the party. And if, if Democrats can manage to pull 15 or 20 percent of Republicans away from Kerry Lake, away from, you know, Blake Masters and, and away from Mark Fincham, then they're going to stand a really good chance at winning these contests in November. But that's a that's a big poll. And a lot of that depends on how good a campaign they run, um, what the kind of the national politics is. At the moment, and as as we head forward in the next three months, uh, and and also you know whether any of those Republican candidates do try to uh, try to temper their stances or try to pivot to the center, um, and and so those things are all a little bit up in the air. Some of those are things that Democrats need to actively do, and some of it is just that they need to kind of you know have have good fortune in terms of the the national climate. And again, I'm speaking with Jim Small, who's editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror, a nonprofit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government, a native Arizonan. He has covered state government, policy, and politics since 2004, and previously was executive director and editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting, as well as the editor of the Arizona Capital Times. And his latest article at the Arizona Mirror is, Corporations that pay little in taxes want Kirsten Cinema to kill the corporate minimum tax. So let's talk about what Cinema has agreed to and what she has not agreed to and what the Democrats were forced to change. And Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, said uh, he had no choice. In other words, he didn't say, he didn't use the word blackmail, but basically he was saying I had no choice but to accede to 
cinema's demands. She, as your article point out, spent time with the CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce and that the people that back the Chamber of Commerce haven't paid taxes. You've written the, the numbers down here. Bank of America earned $31 billion in 2021 but paid an effective tax rate of just 3.5%. And AT&T, despite earnings of $29.6 billion, claimed a $1.2 billion refund. And in 2021, the company paid nearly $15.1 billion on dividends. In the first half of 2022, AT&T spent more than $5.8 billion on shareholder dividends. And then, of course, you've got Amazon, which pays 6.1% tax on $35.1 billion in earnings. Microsoft pays 9.7% of taxes on $33.7 billion in earnings. And UPS, 9.9% on $1.4 billion in earnings. And Verizon, 6.9% on $27.2 billion in earnings. So these are all the big companies in the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. And the issue was, of course, a corporate minimum tax. Apparently, cinema has made the Democrats rejigger it a little bit. What do you know about the compromise? It's apparently something to do with advanced uh, manufacturing, which probably suggests the Silicon Valley. What was the compromise that she managed yeah, I think we're still we're still looking to see some of the exactly what the details are, but we do know that it was aimed at kind of the manufacturing sector and particularly the high tech manufacturing, and it has less to do with Silicon Valley than it actually does with uh, with Arizona in a lot of ways. Believe it or not, uh, we have a number of high tech manufacturing plants here, um, including in, the biggest one we have is is Intel, right? That makes the the computer chips uh, that go in you know computer computers, the cars. I mean, they go in everything. And they've got a, a couple of manufacturing plants here. We've got several other uh, uh, micro uh, semiconductor uh, plants, uh, manufacturing plants that are in the process of being built, and that'll be up online in the next couple of years. Uh, so th- there's been a huge influx of uh, advanced manufacturing into Arizona, and that's one of that was one of the the main points that our state chamber of commerce was pushing was you know this tax as it's proposed. They, what they said was basically would uh, would cripple the advanced manufacturing uh, industry uh, in in the state and and across the country. Whether that's true or not, I think you know uh, I I I'm personally skeptical of that. Uh, I don't think that it would have at all. I don't, I'm not sure that companies having to pay pay taxes uh, is something that will break them. Uh, but that being said, you know they the, the state chamber embarked on you know. A very intense and quick pressure campaign on, on Kirsten Cinema, and then they she has been a you know an ally and an advocate for uh, for the big businesses in this state, uh, and they really turned her. They said not just not just because she's from Arizona, but all, I mean also because you know she really is that linchpin into getting anything done in the Senate. And and after you know it was readily apparent that as soon as the deal got announced uh, last week between uh, Schumer and Manchin that all eyes turned to cinema because she was suddenly the the last remaining roadblock there. And she had the power in her hands to demand really whatever she wanted. And, you know, the, the things that she demanded were extra spending for drought, uh, drought related measures, which again, very important in Arizona uh, and certainly in, you know, California and, and across the Southwest uh, and changes to the tax provisions. And one of those changes is going to be to that corporate minimum tax uh, to require that that will require most businesses that pay more than a billion dollars 
uh, or that that earn, excuse me, that earn more than a billion dollars to pay a minimum of 15% taxes. Uh, and, and the other thing was a, a change to what's called the carried interest loophole, uh, basically removing um, some, something to address that. And, and essentially what that is, is that's a tax gimmick that allows hedge funds and venture capitalists and, and people who are people and companies that are, uh, you know, that essentially, uh, you know, make their money uh, on, on the stock market with capital gains and essentially allows them to continue to avoid taxes uh, because of the change that you push for there. So, uh, it's certainly fascinating, I think, on a lot of le- a lot of levels. I mean, that, that you had a Democrat who had the ability to demand whatever whatever she wanted. And the two things she asked for were, you know, tax cuts and tax loopholes <laughs> to be inserted into the into the bill. Uh, I, th- I think it's a lot. And I, I think it says a lot about her priorities. And it says a lot about, uh, you know, I, I think the out- the outcry you've seen from Democrats um, you know, says a lot about kind of where the party is and, and how they view her. Uh, and, and I'm sure that this will just be. Uh, fuel on the fire that will help uh, spur a primary challenge for her in 2024. So the carried interest loophole, which is something that the uh, hedge fund uh, managers have protected, and this is something she went to bat for, and apparently it's been incredibly unpopular, and even uh, Obama tried to get rid of it, and even Trump tried to get rid of it, which is really surprising. But she's stuck a neck out for this one thing and one thing only, and succeeded. And we're not sure about the compromises in terms of the 15% corporate minimum tax that she also managed to wrangle. But on Saturday, of course, they're debating the whole bill, so maybe we'll learn something more today, Sunday. But still, what's your sense then of uh, whether or not she knows that she's unpopular? She's obviously unpopular with the Democratic base, and popular with the Republicans. And she often sits with the Republicans, by the way, in the Senate. So is she angling, do you think, for a big payoff? Um, a big payoff in what regard? Well, in other words, that she knows that she won't get reelected, but she'll end up working for a hedge fund. I mean, think of the money that these people are saving. She's, she's giving them a multi-billion dollar gift, is she not? Oh, she absolutely is. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what's what, what is honestly is in her future. I mean, I think there's no doubt she's going to get a primary contest in 2024 um, from a progressive candidate. Uh, if I had to guess right now, I'd say, you know, most people look at uh, Ruben Gallego, who's a congressman from Phoenix, as being the the person who's most likely to challenge her. And, and, and I think that that's probably right. He would be um, he's he's progressive. He's Latino. He would be an incredibly uh, he would make a really compelling case to Democrats uh, as to why they should uh, why they should replace her. Uh, you know, her Kirsten's political future, I think, really does hinge on this primary in 24. Um, you know, if she can get through that primary, she's going to have a very good chance of getting reelected in, in November. Um, you know, I think a lot of her support, a lot of her favorability comes from at this point comes from Republicans. I mean, she has really just alienated Democrats up and down uh, in this state. Uh, and they really, really do not like her. Um, but it's just, a, it, you know, it, it's a matter of whether she gets a, a credible challenge or she raises um, inordinate sums of money for her campaign. So she will absolutely be able to mount a vigorous um, and aggressive campaign, um, you know, and and, you know, in terms of like what she does when she's out of if and when she, you know, she leaves the Senate. I mean, yeah, it, she would she would certainly not be the not be the first and, and will hardly be the last person. Um, you know, person to leave elected office and immediately go into, you know, the corporate world or the lobbying world 
uh, and and try to try to essentially capitalize on on the reputation that they built as an elected official. And, and it wouldn't shock me at all to see that happen. Well, Jim Smola, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jim Small, who's editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror, a nonprofit newsroom in Phoenix that covers state and local politics and government, a native Arizonan. He has covered state government policy and politics since 2004 and was previously the executive director and editor of the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting, as well as an editor as the editor of the Arizona Capital Times. And his latest article at the Arizona Mirror is Corporations that pay little in taxes want Kirsten Cinema to kill the corporate minimum tax. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining further the sellout Senator Cinnamon, this vain dilettante who refuses to talk to the press or her own constituents while currying favor with the billionaire class she appears to be auditioning for, having gifted hedge fund managers and private equity titans by saving the carried interest loophole that even Trump wanted to close. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Erica Payne, the founder and president of Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressives, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement, and the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Erica Payne. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And Kirsten Cinema managed to go to the mat for the hedge fund managers and private equity titans in this country. There's only about 5,000 of these people there among the richest people in the entire country that she went to bat for. And this is a U.S. senator who refuses to speak to the press. So she did not being held to account by the press, which is very suspicious, uh, and apparently doesn't seem to care about her own constituents, particularly the more progressive ones who are probably going to primary her before the 2024 re-election bid. So you've come out with some pretty strong statements, and frankly, there's no other way to just, to look at her, is there? I mean, she doesn't talk to the... As I say, she doesn't talk to the press... She doesn't really interact with her constituents, and she talks to the Chamber of Commerce and the billionaire people, but not to anybody else. So what are we to make of this? Well, I mean, what I have concluded is that on some level, Kirsten Cinema has been applying for a job with the private equity industry for the entirety of her Senate campaign. This is a woman who has put her she's basically staked her reputation on holding on to this loophole. This is the single most egregious loophole in the entire American tax system. And given how absolutely ridiculous our tax system is, that's really saying something. This is a loophole that basically allows fund managers, people who manage other people's money, 
who have none of their own capital at risk at all for them to receive the preferential capital gains rate instead of having to pay ordinary income for what is for all intents and purposes a job, just like any other person has a job. It benefits a tiny number of the very richest people in the entire country. And if you find a topic that everybody from Donald Trump to Barack Obama to Bill Ackman to Jamie Dimon to Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders agree on, and you can can't get it passed because of Kirsten Cinema. We've got a big problem. Well, let me read what you've written about this, and I think it really nails it. Kirsten Cinema has spent her entire Senate term posturing for a multi-million-dollar job in private equity. Now she's looking to close the deal. When Cinema loses her primary and a Senate seat, if she even bothers to run at all, her private equity billionaire backers will give her not a golden parachute, but a diamond-studded, ruby-encrusted platinum one. Because of her and her alone, billionaire fund managers will keep getting away with murder and Kirsten Cinema will be their very well-paid hitman. At this point, it's clear that Cinema never intended to serve the people of Arizona, but instead to use her Senate seat as a springboard into the elite class. Her vote to save the single most intellectually indefensible, morally unforgivable, economically inexcusable loophole in the entire tax code is the cost of entry. So there you have it, uh, <laughs> fighting <laughs> words. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up, Ian. And, um, you know, th this is a loophole for which there is no intellectual defense. Of course, the Chamber of Commerce is going to come out and say that it will de depress investment if you take away the spe special tax loophole. That is complete nonsense. There is not an investor on the planet who makes an investment decision based on a tax rate. These private equity fund managers go in and pretend, while they pretend like they're job creators, what they basically go, do is go into a pre-existing company, suck all of the value out of it, leverage it up with debt, cash out, pay the managing partners a huge amount of money, lay off hundreds of thousands of people, destroy perfectly fine businesses. And for that, we are expected to give them a tax rate. And here is a Democratic senator who is who threatened to hold up a very modest set of reforms in the tax code in order to get this special break for these people. I don't think that there is any logical conclusion, but that she is in the middle of a job interview and she wants to close the deal. I guarantee you, number one, I don't think she's running again because she will lose. OK, she'll lose in the primary. Um, and so what other explanation could there possibly be for this? There is none. She is corrupt from the bottom of her toes to the top of her head. And the people of Arizona need to know that sooner rather than later. And again, I'm speaking with Erica Payne, who is the founder and president of Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement, and the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Well, let's do the math, if we can, Erica, because it seems that if you say there are 5,000 of the richest people in the country that are benefiting from this carried interest loophole, the, the head fund manager and private equity titans. So 5,000 of them, and they're going to keep the tax at 20% capital gains as opposed to, what, 37% income. So there's 17% they're saving 
on taxes, and if you did multiply them by 5,000, and they're all multi-billionaires, this is a lot of money that she's uh, giving these people or allowing them to keep. So it's got to be worth something, don't you think, for her? If you, well, if you... it's absolutely worth something. I mean, I think what you're going to see is that she is either going to decline to run again or will lose her primary. And when that happens, shortly thereafter, there will be an announcement that she has taken a job either with Steve Schwartzman or Bill Price or, you know, one of these other yahoos who can't seem to to get it into their heads that they are not the gods of the universe and that they need to come down to earth and be treated like every other human being. But with that much money, you can pay off a lot of people to do what you want. And cinema has gotten campaign contributions from that industry to date. She did an internship at a little vineyard owned by one. I mean, she's been hobnobbing with these folks for a long time, but those campaign contributions are not the big score here. The big score for her is going to be a partnership at one of those firms when she leaves the Senate, which would be a multi, multi-million dollar annual salary. And, you know, Kirsten Cinema has said, you know, she grew up in a um, in very challenging circumstances, spent some of her childhood living in a car and being homeless. And as opposed to taking that lesson of those hardships and finding a way to serve the people of Arizona and find ways that the government can help people get their feet underneath them. She has instead decided to use her Senate seat as entree into this elite class. She's had her finger, her nose pressed up against the glass for most of her life. And this is her ticket to the sweet life. And it's on the backs of hardworking people in Arizona who currently pay twice the tax rate of these private equity billionaires. It's disgusting. So if she's the way she appears to be, and she's obviously, as I say, the biggest flag for me is that she won't talk to the press and barely or rarely interacts with the constituents and only hangs out with rich folks. And as you mentioned, uh, the private equity billionaire Bill Price, it was his uh, winery that she interned at last summer, wasn't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, and keep in mind that these are folks, I mean, I, I always, I think people have heard billionaire for so long now, they've kind of forgotten how much money that is. That is $1,001 million. And so she's basically looking at somebody who has more than $1,001 million. And she is saying that the best thing she could do for the citizens of Arizona is to make sure that those people are paying half the tax rate of ordinary working people in her state. You can't square that circle without corruption being right at the heart of that decision. So you've been trying to out her for some time, your organization, the Patriotic Millionaires, which is a group of high net worth Americans, business leaders and investors who are united in their concern about historical levels of inequality and destabilizing concentration of wealth and power in America. So tell us about your activities in Arizona to smoke her out. I mean, has she ever answered anything? As I say, you know, the big red flag is she won't talk to the press. So she's obviously got something to hide. Well, the big red flag is she won't talk to the press, but she also won't talk to her constituents. She also won't talk to, you know, I mean, basically anybody except somebody who's writing her a check to her campaign, which is 
which is not the way that representative government is supposed to work. So what we have done is tried to point that out to the people of Arizona. We took out a full page ad in every newspaper in Arizona a few months back explaining what this loophole is um, and talking about Kirsten Cinema's support of it. We have done mobile billboard campaigns, um, you know, pushing her on this internship she did at this winery, and um, and 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 we'll see what we have in store for her coming up. But I, I, I'm, we are not going to make this an easy choice for her. And I mean, the biggest, the biggest point for us is that we, that. 70% of the American people think the tax code is rigged against them, Ian. And we've got news for them. They're right. The economy is grossly rigged against ordinary people and in favor of very rich people. And how do you rig an economy? You start with the tax code. And if you're going to start rigging an economy through the tax code, the first place you go is the carried interest loophole. And we're not going to make this easy for her. I think the American people are sick and tired of all of Washington nonsense. And this is one of these things. This is not about anything other than money and power. This is power corrupting a system so thoroughly that you can't even create an intellectually defensible reason that makes any sense to anybody for the position on this. I don't believe in litmus tests, Ian. This is a litmus test. There are two sides to this, the right side and the wrong side. Kirsten Cinema is definitively on the wrong side. And what's the most pathetic part about it is that they didn't even close the carried interest loophole. They just extended the hold time for the investments from three years to five years. Well, most private equity firms hold their investments for six or seven years, if not longer. So this change was not even all the way closing the loophole and she won't even vote for this modest change that moves it from three years to five years. There's no conclusion for this other than she is absolutely corrupt, top to bottom. So just in the last uh, few minutes then, Erica Payne, it does seem that this is an open and shut case and the plutocracy and the billionaires that, you know, arguably the biggest challenge America faces is the contest between plutocracy and democracy. And we know how the wealthy and how the Republicans are rigging the playing field, particularly in the state of Arizona, which we covered in the uh, first segment of today's program. So it's a very bleak picture, and it does seem that that the plutocrats have got it wired. They control the Republican Party outright. They're all lockstep in support of tax breaks for the super-rich, and all it takes is to peel off one Democrat. And they've done that with cinema to get their way. So the answer, surely, it would seem to me, uh, Erica, is that you don't want to be in a situation where cinema and mansion can hold the Democratic Party and reform in general hostage. You've got to get more Democrats to the uh, elected to the Senate. Is that the lesson? Well, the lesson is more Democrats, but it's a it's a bigger lesson than that. It's more Democrats and different Democrats. Kirsten Cinema is a symbol of a takeover of both political parties that has been going on for a long time. As you pointed out, at this point, the Republican Party is basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the billionaire class. The Democratic Party historically has not been particularly better. Okay, let's talk about financial deregulation under Bill Clinton, okay, which um, wrecked the uh, entire world financial system. 
um, and took a long time for him to apologize for. But be that as it may, they have taken over a huge swath of the Democratic Party. Now, that has started to change in the last 10 years where you have people confronting Democratic leadership about the level of um, the level of unseemly untoward relationships that drive public policy through that program. Kirsten Cinema, I mean, I think what's so obnoxious about it is she's just not even bothering to hide it anymore. I mean, this particular loophole, for her to say she would not vote for this bill for this particular loophole, that has to tell you that she's aiming for a job and it's not a job as a United States senator. Well, it's a depressing situation, I must say. But, you know, it, the fact of the matter is our legislators are telemarketers. They spend their days dialing for dollars. This is the system we have. Money talks, and it's all about money. It's not about candidates and ideas and policies and plans and programs. This is, uh, again, Citizens United, the greatest disaster that ever befell us. Well, that's right. But I also will say that there are a lot of people who manage to dial for dollars with some chunk of their time, but remain, um, you know, relatively credible intellectually and morally in terms of legislation. So you it, just because the system is itself corrupt does not necessarily mean that it has to corrupt every single person. The thing about Kirsten Cinema is that it's almost like she didn't even she didn't even try to stop the corruption. She walked in there in order to take advantage of it. I think there are plenty of lawmakers in office who try to do the right thing in a system that does not reward them for doing the right thing, but they have the moral courage, the personal fortitude to continue to be good, moral, decent, um, and smart thinking people through the swampland. Kirsten Sinema decided to become a swamp creature. Eric Campaign, I thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. Good to see you. Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Eric Campaign, the founder and president of Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement, and the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the success so far of Putin's weaponization of history as his Orwellian lies and historical fiction indoctrinates Russian soldiers mired in his special operation in Ukraine while keeping the home front on board through propaganda and repression of dissent. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Isabella Tabarovsky, who is a senior program associate at the Kennan Institute, where she oversees the Institute's historical memory research and programming, manages its Russia file and Focus Ukraine blogs. Welcome to Background Briefing. Isabella Tabarovsky. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And let's start out with some sort of definitions here. Could you make the case that Putin's Russia today is a fascist state? I mean, it's what they accuse the Ukraine of being, but the evidence seems to be indicate that the opposite is true. Well, fascist, a fascist state, I, I, I don't want to wade into sort of 
political science and very specific categories that that this might indicate. But there are certainly signs that Russia is that it has some kind of a neo-fascist, uh, some kind of neo-fascist characteristics. There is certainly extreme nationalism, extreme sort of emphasis put on the idea of national unity. There is xenophobia. There is a very clear separation between us and them. There is uh, violence against people who disagree with the state and certainly the othering of those groups that disagree with the state. It's a repressive regime. So we do have those characteristics for sure. And how would you describe uh, Putin? Could he be described as being a Stalinist? Because he, um, we understand that he, he hates Lenin, but admires Stalin. Well, again, I'm, uh, I'm mindful of, of specific meaning of these terms. Is he a Stalinist? Uh, he does certainly want for Russia to view Stalin as less of an evil figure than we know him to be. Uh, he likes to emphasize, or let's, let's say that his regime certainly prefers to emphasize all the great things that happen under Stalin, such as the victory in World War II. And that is really crucial uh, for Russian sense of identity. And this was a very intentional, uh, an intentional goal that Putin set for himself to create, uh, to build Russian national identity around that victory in that war. So this is, this is how I would describe him. So let's turn to what's happening in Ukraine and the extent to which Russian soldiers are being sort of brainwashed into believing all kinds of ridiculous historical motives for this so-called special military operation. And, I mean, they've been capped. The BBC interviewed a captured soldier some time back in the Donbass who said they asked him what he was fighting for, and he was he was fighting against the Ukrainian regime because he didn't want to be forced to marry a man. And then you've got other examples of, you know, in Butcher before they uncovered the massacres there, Russian soldiers would kick in doors and ask, where are the Banderites? Referring back to Banda, back to the 1920s. So it's obviously very distorted, and it's a twofold purpose, right, to indoctrinate the soldiers with a complete a fictional version of things so that that could motivate them to fight against so-called fascists. And on the other hand, they also have to indoctrinate the support team back home into believing that the cause is just. So that's what's happening, is it not? Exactly. And I think what's really interesting about the examples that you just gave is that they illustrate precisely the really bizarre ideological ideologically hybrid nature of Putin's regime. Because look what the soldiers are saying. One of them is saying, I don't want to be forced to marry a man. So this is a reference to one strand of Russian propaganda that says that in the West, the rotten West, it's all about you know non-traditional sexual relations. I mean, Russian propaganda harps on this all the time. There are TV commercials that make fun of that, the idea that in the West everybody is is doing these corrupt things. So, but but that they're sort of making fun of the left-wing 
currents or not making fun, but but fighting uh, or making use of the left wing currents in the West. And on the other hand, another group of soldiers that says, where are the Banderavites? So they are in, they are responding to the indoctrin indoctrination that Ukraine is on the under the influence of the far right, right? So this is where the Ukrainian neo-Nazis come to play. So I think that it's it's really interesting how omnivorous uh, the Putin's regime is these days, and it's really toxic. They make use of absolutely everything that they can get their hands on in order to indoctrinate soldiers and the general population against the West and toward the idea that Russia has a special purpose and Russia is the only country that can stand up to this corrupt west and with its with its traditional values and its spirituality its religion so it's it's a really bizarre mix well interesting enough of course the hungarian prime minister orban spoke at the cpac conference in dallas and gave a somewhat identical speech to what you're talking about which is what putin's been propagating the idea that the west is corrupt and the family unit is being degraded by political correctness and homosexuality. Exactly. It's a very similar uh, strand of thought. It's kind of, you know, beyond left and right, it's it's really, they just take whatever they can use and put it into a single uh, new form, new ideological form for which I don't think we even have a name yet. And again, I'm speaking with Isabella Tabarovsky, who's a senior program associate at the Cannon Institute, where she oversees the Institute's historical memory research and programming, manages its Russia file and Focus Ukraine blogs. So let's talk about how effective this propaganda is, both inside Russia and, and among the Russian soldiers fighting in uh, Ukraine, because they've obviously not been doing as well as as Putin and and the generals promised, and it's pretty clear that when they're told they're fighting for a noble cause, there's nothing noble about looting homes, raping women, and there have been horrible uh, reports of Hadirov's Chechens castrating a, a Ukrainian prisoner of war and then shooting him dead, and then, of course, the massacre of the POWs uh, recently in the Donbass. Looks like it was, an, it was done by the Wagner Group, the, the mercenaries, that are very important, along with the Chechens. It doesn't seem like the Russians are actually doing very well with their own recruits, many of whom come from the furthest reaches of Siberia and other, and other you know, outlying areas. So it's a pretty hard um, sell, isn't it, being this noble cause? So what's seeping through the cracks in inside Russia itself, or is the, the propaganda narrative, the Orwellian narrative, holding? Well, the first thing I, I want to say is that we don't really know exactly what Russian public opinion is. It's very hard to measure. I would take with a very big grain of salt any results of any surveys because it's a, it's a, an oppressive, repressive regime. The punishment for uh, breaking the speech laws is really, really harsh. And every day there are, there is news about somebody else getting arrested or tried uh, or sentenced to some years in prison for breaking those speech laws. So we don't fully know. We do know that there are people who resist, who are against it. We see signs that people leave surreptitiously on 
on walls of buildings or inside apartment kind of public spaces of apartment complexes or on sidewalks that are against the war. But it's undoubtedly also true that many people do choose to believe what they are hearing. And I think that what's important here also is that the soldiers, I think that, yes, it's hard to for them to raise the morale to the same level as the morale of the Ukrainians who are fighting for their land, who do have uh, kind of they 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 are fighting for the just cause, but they are trying to buy the loyalty of the soldiers. So the vast majority, maybe truly the vast majority, I'm sure, of the people who are fighting are there on contract. Uh, so they're paid very big amounts of money uh, for these people who, as you say, come from poor regions. The, these are a lot of times astronomical amounts of money for them. It could be $20,000 or something like that. They intimidate them into silence. They brainwash them. Ex the examples that you gave show that, in fact, soldiers to some extent do believe the things that they're told. So there are multiple ways. Just recently they passed a new law that would give the status of a veteran to anyone who has been to the military zone, any civilian even who has been to the military zone as part of the operation. So a doctor, a mechanic who is there to fix the tanks, even war correspondents. And all you have to do is be there for one day and you come back and you receive the veteran status. And that has a lot of benefits attached to it. So they're really trying to buy the loyalty and inspire people, I think, in that way in addition to propaganda. Well, in the, in the Soviet times, of course, the propaganda was ubiquitous, as it is now, and I think you can probably make some analogies there. But there was also a tremendous amount of cynicism. I mean, the, the common expression in uh, Soviet Russia for joining the Communist Party was stepping in doo-doo. And, <laughs> right. and in those days, the Soviet peoples and the Russian people didn't hate America. They actually probably in many cases hated their own government more than America. So the anti-American propaganda wasn't working. But it looks as if it's working now, interestingly enough, that there's a genuine belief across Russia that America's behind the whole thing, and which is what Putin, of course, is, is pushing. And we can get into that details later. But just to, just to address that, if you will. Well, I think that in Soviet times, I don't think it would be right to say that everybody believed that actually the West was ideologically correct or however you want to put it. I think that there were plenty of people, again, among, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, common people, people who were from simpler, people who were from simpler backgrounds. I think that they, right, uh, I'm sorry, you're trying to say something? I was going to say that the narod, the, the, the people. The, the, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the backwoods here in the United States, which tend to be very conservative. Well, that's right. And, and it's not only being conservative. That certainly is also um, a case. But it's also just not necessarily being into... Uh, the analysis of what they're saying out there, you know, so they're saying something out there at the top. They know better. What do we know? We have to worry about day to day. And so I think there is a lot of that now as well. I think a lot of people, especially because they feel the tension around it, because they see that people are being punished for saying certain things and they don't quite know what is 
what what is the right thing to do or to say all they hear is one point of view they truly are blocked off uh, all, all the other points of view are blocked off all the independent media has been shut down they're truly they truly live in an information bubble and so i think that in both cases there are those who see the truth and the difference the, and the difference i think i would say between now and the soviet union is that in soviet times those who disagreed with the regime couldn't leave right you were not allowed to leave the country and today the borders are open for those who want to go and we know that around we don't actually know the exact number but some 300,000 people it's estimated have left putin has referred to them as traitors he also said that it's a good thing that they went the society needs to cleanse itself it cleanses itself through emigration and so in a way as they leave the society becomes even more homogenous it doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with the regime has left either it's one of the big discussions now inside the russian community those who left versus those who stayed what does it mean to leave what does it mean to stay but uh, but but yeah there are there are both they're both so in the last few minutes then isabella let's turn to the possibility or the likelihood that September the 15th is the date that I've heard that Putin is going to annex the territories that the Russians have captured in the Donbass and the land corridor down to Crimea. Obviously, there's a battle underway for Kherson, which the Ukrainians would like to retake from the Russians. And there's a, quite a lot of tensions over the, the big, biggest nuclear plant in Europe there that's be, just been shut down because... The Russians have been putting their artillery there so that the Ukrainians can't retaliate without risking a meltdown. So the level of of Russian strategy has always been dangerous to reckless. But if Putin were to declare the occupied areas Russian territory, could he therefore claim that any incoming artillery round or high-mass rocket coming from Ukraine fired at what is now Russian territory... Is it an attack on Russia itself by NATO? Well, that's a good question. I think, obviously, from the purely speculative point of view, I think uh, definitely we know that he, he could say it. We don't know if he will, but he could say it. We know that from the beginning of this conflict, Russian propaganda has been positioning this as essentially NATO. Uh, NATO's aggression against Russia. And you see this, it continues. It's a thread that continues throughout the Russian propaganda that it's the NATO that's supplying Ukraine. And so therefore it is the West that's against Russia. The West has imposed sanctions. And so therefore, if you ordinary Russian citizens are experiencing hardship, it's again, it's because of the West. So I think that that possibility will always be open. And, and uh, depending on the West reaction to this potential annexation uh, that that uh, the Russian propaganda will respond accordingly. So this is going to be a long war, is it not? So just in, in closing, Isabella, there's another level at which it's being fought in, in terms of Western resolve. I guess Putin's calculus is that the Germans don't want to freeze in the winter and um, the longer this goes on, the more likely there'll be a fracture within NATO. There already is, of course, with Orban. Uh, right. So that's on the one hand. And on and on the other hand, we've talked about it earlier, is it possible that with the body bags coming home and, it, you know, the lies 
the lies can't be sustained forever. They've done a pretty good job of it, but presumably at some point or other, glimmers of truth open some cracks. So if you see that as a race, what do you think is likely to happen? The West crumbles before Russia figures out what's really going on? Well, I certainly think that the West has a harder task in front of it because we are democracies, right? We are countries where we follow the rules of democratic discourse and discussion and there is real politics that's going on. In Russia, you don't have politics. In Russia, people don't have a voice, right? In Russia, people, the elections are staged. So, for example, in advance of this date of September 15th, Russia is planning to stage referendums in these occupied areas so that to make it look for their domestic audiences as if there is legitimacy, as if there is people's will that's being expressed. So, so much can be staged in Russia and information can be suppressed for so, so long, again, in the absence of any independent news, that I think, again, I think the West faces um, a much harder struggle that's that's for sure and i'll add one more thing if there is time is that one of the things that has surprised analysts the most i would say or a lot in this conflict is how little the return of the coffins is impacting russian public opinion it's not what happened for example in the first chechen war in the mid 1990s it was yeltsin's Chechen war. That at that time the, the the body bags really made a difference. This time they don't, and it's perhaps a separate conversation as to why that is, but it, it has to do with the level of repression that exists in the Russian society today. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Isabella Tabarovsky. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Isabella Tabarovsky, who's a senior program associate at the Cannon Institute, where she oversees the Institute's historical memory research and programming, manages its Russia file and Focus Ukraine blogs. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
Sunday.